0: our church covenant series is again intended for for us as a church to reexamine what are we building together are we all reading off the same set of blueprints when it comes to the church being what god has called it to be and the reality is we're all going to have a little bit different of a difference of a nuance of of how we interact with the church how we're involved some of that's based on our personal history. Some of it's based on gifting dynamics that are in our lives. But we all need to come to a place where we're, we're aiming at the same thing and living towards it with a passion to see it get accomplished. So we're, we're here to build the church for the glory of God. And building a building gives us a, an illustration for that. We are about building a building, but we're, we're really about building the church for the glory of God. And that involves how we relate how we walk together. Today, we're going to address the issue of, of what we believe together, what we hold as the principles that support and guide our lives. And in the introduction there entitled Decision Making, Goals, Values, and the Authority of Scripture. Let me throw out a couple of real life scenarios. What happens if in your life or someone that you love, circumstances in your marriage or in a person that you know in their marriage leads in a a deteriorating way towards divorce. You are facing uh, a place you never thought you would be in your relationship with your spouse or a close relative or dear friend is walking through a scenario and at this point, continuing the relationship is not attractive any longer. And divorce begins to be a consideration. Now, my question to you is, what counsel do you give to another person who's in that scenario? What guides your view and your opinion about what they should do next? What guides your opinions and your views on how to handle the difficulty that you find yourself in personally in your life? How about this scenario? Your child, You have a child, young child, who is openly defiant and not responsive to you on a regular basis. This is not a, a one-time event. This is a regular pattern of a child who does not respond to your leadership and authority and directions in his or her life. What, what body of wisdom guides your actions to interact with that child in response to that need in their life? to give you a couple of possibilities do you consider positive reinforcement rewarding the child if they won't do that again to you you consider sharing your feelings with the child you know when when you do that daddy really daddy really has his feelings hurt I mean how, where do you go with with responding to that do you do you get down and do the eye-to-eye technique where you get down in their face and you communicate to the child um, do you put them in timeout Create a scenario called timeout, and uh, that's that's where we're going to put you for your attitude and behavior. Do you spank them? Do you call nanny nine one one? What 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 do you do in that moment? Uh, what body of ideas influence the way you interact in that moment with that need in your child? How about this scenario? You are at work. And a conversation breaks out at the lunch table about the roles of men and women in society. How they relate to one another. How they function in the home setting. What a wife and what a husband uh, are called to be as they relate to each other. What are the appropriate ambitions for each one in dynamics of interaction with each other? Dynamics of ambitions in society? Uh, And you interact in that conversation. Where do your ideas come from? What reflects off view when you begin to speak on a topic like that? Or, similar scenario in a setting where um, various religions are being discussed. Maybe this is a Thanksgiving holiday meal with family members and a discussion is being had about various religions. you know, we live in a, in a culture that's unique in many ways in that we have a plurality of religions in our country. And so in the country that we respect their laws here and appreciate the laws and how they've been fashioned and formed so that the practice of religion is welcome in this country by a variety of, of ideas. They're all welcome to be practiced in this country. That's not true in some other countries. But how one interacts, in a way, with those religions in terms of the viability of them. Because they're all allowed to be practiced in America, do we hold the position as individuals, as part of the body of Christ, that they're all viable? That they're all, they're all okay, basically, as long as they don't become violent towards others, etc. You know, In the news, constantly today would be issues about Islam constantly in the news today. What would be the basis for you labeling Islam good or respectable? What would be the basis for that? What would be the basis for you labeling Islam evil and not respectable? Now imagine in this room you have an opinion one way or the other. If you don't, let me say this, you should have an opinion one way or the other. And hopefully after today you'll understand why I say that. Uh, What would be your... View in assessing the meaningful differences between uh, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Do you understand that there are differences? Have you ever considered the source of those differences? Do you ever consider the meaningfulness of those differences? Are those differences? Do they have any meaning? Should those be made a big deal out of it or ignored? See, all of these issues are being informed by our our worldview, our view of God our view of how we live life. And, and I could go on list after list of, of things that that we're walking together and we're proclaiming something from our belief system. And the question is, what is the basis for our belief, for our attitudes in life, for our life decisions? What's the basis for that? Is the basis our uh, our Family traditions. We just happen to be born into this family that happened to have these ideas that circulated around mom and dad's heads. And they were just passed on to us. And here we are age 30, age 40, and we're still walking in those ideas. And it's just it's just what we've always believed Uh, or are our ideas being fashioned by our culture. You know, our culture is moving towards certain ideas about how to handle differences between individuals. Are we, are we simply becoming a reflection of our culture? Are we a reflection of our race? Because, you know, for the most part in this church, we're white. Does that mean that's where my ideas come from? Because I was raised in a certain race. and I have certain ideas that float around in my head. Political parties. Uh, many Christians have simply checked off the box of Republican and, and that's that's where they're coming from. So if an idea gets floated into the media, then if it's representing Republican conservatism, then that, then that's that's our view. Now these would be things that that need to be considered, because the church is called to demonstrate wisdom and ideas in the world. We we are a think tank, source of information into the world and to each other. And I would be concerned that the church lacks a consistent voice in many of the issues that I just expressed that are common, everyday issues. Uh, some of them are, are larger, more politically charged, and maybe more in view publicly issues. But within the church today, there, there would be a lack of consistent voice in some of these issues. You know, Mike stood up this morning and expressed concerns and obviously has a belief system in place about abortion. Uh, in, in this meeting, it's, it's, it's possible you come from a different slant. Probably politically it would be true that you may come from a different slant and view that that issue differently. There would be churches that do not agree on the issue of abortion in this country. Yet they're, they're wrapped in the clothing of Christianity and expressing a view. And the question needs to be, where does that view come from? The The ideas of Um, you know in the news constantly alternative lifestyles alternative lifestyles are being debated all over the news today churches don't all sound the same way when they come to address that there are denominations who are debating the putting in place of leaders who have lifestyles that would be anti-biblical And yet their debate is not about whether that that is appropriate behavior. Their debate is long since over about that. Their debate now is about whether somebody should be a pastor or a bishop within the church structure with that lifestyle. And so churches don't all sound the same. Uh, The viability of religions. We do not all sound the same. There are people dressed in Christianity today who are standing up and saying one thing about a, a, a Contrary religion that's contrary to Christianity, and you have other people who are saying something else. We, we simply don't all sound the same. Well, an issue, and this, is, this may sound philosophical to you, but it, it infects every person who stands in a pulpit. What is man's most basic need? I mean, every time somebody stands up and preaches, if they're going to attempt to be relevant at all, they're going to try to apply the scriptures to what's needed in the human experience. Well, what is man's most basic need? For years, problem solvers, pop psychology and, and news programs as well as Oprah-styled presentations that are out there in the world have told us that man's most, most basic need has to do usually with his self-esteem, is a need to think well of himself. And... Because children aren't, aren't taught that at a young age, they grow up to become criminal, they grow up they have problems in society. See, this is a basic human element of how do you view man's most basic need? Is it that we have a self-esteem problem or is it that we have a self-idolatry problem? I mean, vastly different views would be in place in how you think about it. Is it that man needs to first learn how to love himself Or is it that man already loves himself too much? Now, which one of those basic components is infecting our society? We can all have opinions on that, but the question is, do I have a biblically-based opinion on those issues? Remember last week, we talked about the fact that that this whole series of Church Covenant reflects the fact that we're called to be the church. That's what we're called to be. And what is the church? Church. The church in the Greek language is the ekklesia, the two words, "out" and, ek, out, and kaleo, called, the called out ones. That's what the church is. It's those who are called out. They are the saints in the Bible. The saints are the hagios. They are the separated ones. And so the church is those who are called out and separated. And we looked in First Peter chapter 2. If you want to turn there again quickly, because this, this verse forms the foundation of, for any of us having a passion for why do we have any view in any category? What, what, what ideas are we trying to reflect from our own lives? And why do we hold them with any level of conviction or passion? Well, this verse would really inform us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for God's own possession. Why? Why why all this? Why the called out separate? That you might show forth the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His light. You once were not a people, but now you are a people. A people with a function. So when we talk about being the church, we have to first understand what's governing our lives. We're called together for a purpose. To show and radiate the glory of God. And then what we're talking about today, what we believe, what our opinions are based in, that we all have opinions, what are they based in? What they're based in is a reflection of what we value and esteem. If we're the church, listen, if I'm the church, if I'm a member of the church, I, I don't have the freedom to have opinions that are not based in the opinion of God. I don't have it. If I'm called out to show forth the excellency of him, that day is over in my life. The day of reflecting some, some philosophy or some personal experience or some tradition or the color of my skin, that day is over when I was called out of the world into Christ. I'm now to be representing him with my ideas and what I believe. And remember this verse, turn to First Timothy. Go back to this verse and we're going to spend some time in Timothy today. 1 Timothy chapter 2, is it chapter 3? Did I write that down wrong? Chapter 3, the notes are wrong. 1 Timothy 3, make sure you etch etched that out. Years from now, you go back and look at these notes, you're going to wonder, what on earth was this guy talking about? Verse 14, where Paul sets before the church, his principles to live by, all the letter of Timothy, but we're going to look at 2 Timothy today. All these writings, these pastoral epistles from Paul, he frames. He says, look, I'm trying to get to you guys. I'm trying to come to you. But in case I'm delayed, I'm writing these things to you so that one will know how he ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, listen, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, there there is the centerpiece of the belief system for the church. The church is called to be the pillar and support of the truth. Now, some translations actually translate support as protector of the truth. The church is called to support, uphold, promote, show forth the truth, and to protect the truth. Now, if that's the case, what we believe is critical. And what we believe is going to be reflected in our opinions and how we live our lives. Which has to do with our behavior. So truth is associated with our behavior. It is the foundation for why we live a certain way amongst each other. Now turn to John chapter 17 with me. Let's look at this first thought. The church is defined by its relationship to the truth. That's where the church gets its definition. As much that that, that, that highlights who we are as a people. For instance, being called out. The, the word for church is a called out assembly. So it's not just God didn't just call us out and scatter us to the four corners. He called us out and assembled us. So in some ways, in the Greek language, you would have used the term church to describe an assembly. People who are assembled together for something. But the way the New Testament uses the word church for us is those who are called out into the truth. Right? We're not just a gathering of people. We're a people gathered into the truth in John chapter 17. Jesus' last uh, night together in this high priestly prayer that he prays. This is what he prays for the church in verse 14. He says, I have given them, speaking of the disciples, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Listen, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Sanctify them in truth. The word sanctify there is hagiasan. It's the same word from which we get saints. The saints who are the called out and separated ones. What are they separated into? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we're not just we're not just a different gathering. We're a gathering with exclusive claims of truth being on our lives. We are set apart into the truth. And the truth we're going to look here in just for a quick moment here to define it. The, the, the truth has certain exclusive dynamics to it. This, this, is, this is where, those of us who, who like the softer side of Christianity, this is, this is where we need to force ourselves to think with the other side of our brain. We may not like some of the exclusive dynamics of the truth, but the truth has exclusive dynamics to it. It excludes other things from being true. And it makes that other thing false. everybody with me on this? John chapter fourteen, verse six. Jesus said to him, "I am the way, the truth, and the life right the the article of absoluteness he is he 's it i 'm the truth. you want to know what truth is? Truth is a person I am." The truth. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father ever, ever will, ever was, except through Christ. We live in a plural society that would like people to be okay with all kinds of religious views. You cannot, listen, you cannot believe that that statement from Jesus Christ himself is the truth and validate other views that contradict it. You cannot do it. Now, in society today, we're working hard in this country to accommodate contradictory ideas and say, oh, they're all okay. Everything's beautiful in its own way, apparently. But things can't be true that contradict each other. They can either both be false or one of them can be false. But they can't both be true at the same time. John 8, verse 24, I told you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins unless you believe. See, there's an exclusivity here. There's an absolute statement being made here. No one comes to the father unless you believe that doesn't leave any room for wiggling out of, well, you know, well. I don't don't exactly believe. Well, then, then you're in the category he's referring to. Unless you do believe, you're going to face this. That's the claim of Christianity. John 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Now, I'm going to highlight for a second here. Truth is a person and his work. In the Bible, that's what you encounter. Truth is a person and his work. That's what the truth is when you read it in the Bible. Now, let's put put on some realities here. What does this do for Islam? It's one thing to be in America and to say one has the right to practice their religion, be it Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, whatever. Because one believes that that philosophically is how a government should function, it does not obligate one to agree with that other religion. Let me tell you right now Islam does not agree with Christianity. From their vantage point, you talk to somebody who's really convinced of Islam, they don't accommodate Christianity. There's no accommodation there. There's no, you know. Maybe, maybe they don't buy into the radicalness of how to enforce their religion that's in parts of the world, but they don't tolerate your view. They're not walking around saying that, well, you know, but well, that works for you, and that's okay, really. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can believe about God. They do not tolerate the view of Christianity. Now, I say that because Christianity gets this knock on it like we're these unloving people because we hold the convictions. Well, I don't know how you read these verses, no one comes to the Father but by me. Do you, do you read that as unloving? Or do you read that as a, as a sovereign God's invitation? That if you're coming, you're coming this way. I've provided a way. There are no other ways. Run your whole life down the other paths; You're not going to find a way. A gracious God says, this is the way. Here, I'm the way. I'm the truth. And you're only left with, I don't like that. Therefore, I want something else. But you're not left with, that's an unkind thing to say. To say all those other roads don't go somewhere. That's not unkind if it's true. If it's not true, then it's it's just it's a, a whole bunch of things. But if it is true, it's the kindest, gracious thing to say to any individual. Islam, Islam denies the deity of Christ. Jesus Christ in the eyes of Islam was not is not God. Okay, now. And this is where let's let's part ways. Let's let's You don't have to be obnoxious. I'm I'm preaching today. Don't preach to the people at the Thanksgiving dinner table, okay? Have a conversation with them. Use their name, etc. But this is preaching, okay? I'm up here to make sure you get the force of what God is saying in His Word. (laughs) Thank you for the radicals in the audience. When... When the idea gets promoted out there that we're all worshiping the same God. Now, the the God of Islam is the God of Judeo-Christianity. If you talk to a real fundamentalist Islamic individual, he will have to say it is not. Because we worship Jesus Christ as God. Remember, the reason why Jesus was a lightning rod in Jewish society is because he kept using that I am phrase. I am, I am. Jesus was standing up and he was telling people, remember that encounter that Moses had in the Old Testament? Remember this encounter? Which, you know, by the way, Islam's fine with. Moses had an encounter with God. And God stood and there was a bush and it burned and he said, I am that I am. Do you realize this is why you just cannot believe in Islam and Christianity and hold them both in the same sentence? When Jesus turns to the Jews and He says, I am, He's saying, I'm the guy in the bush. I'm the voice who spoke to Moses. It's me. So you can't turn around and say that Islam believes in the God of Abraham. It was the God of Abraham who was in the bush. And it was the God of Abraham who was on the cross the same God. If you don't believe Jesus Christ is God, then you don't believe in the same God that the Bible believes in. And so I am under no obligation to somehow smooth over our differences to say, well, we all, we all worship the same God just in different ways. We do not. And not because we're obnoxious, but because a man named Muhammad came along and said, stop honoring this person as God. God would not have had a son. It's beneath him. God would not have come in the flesh. God doesn't do that sort of thing. Jesus Christ, be a good man, an angel perhaps, but he's not God. Christianity didn't say that. Islam said that. Islam denies the deity of Christ. Islam disregards the blood of Christ. It is the blood of Christ that sets men right with God. There is no other means of forgiveness. Recite all the prayers, face to the east all you want, but there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Islam disregards the shedding of Jesus Christ's blood. It was meaningless. It didn't need to happen. And if it did, if it did, it had no benefit for anyone. That's what Islam believes about the blood of Christ. Islam disagrees with the words of Christ. If you sit down and you read these passages and all the myriad of other ones that refer to Christ and who he is, the truth about who Jesus Christ is, and you read that to somebody who believes in the Quran, they disagree. Okay, well then let's, let's boil that down. We can be nice, but let's boil it down. Jesus Christ is not the way. He's not the way. He's not the only way to the Father because he's, he's just the man anyway. Okay, well then Jesus Christ said he was the way. If he's not, then he's a liar. So Islam believes Jesus Christ is a liar. Do you understand? I'm just bringing you some thought here because sometimes to stand up and say, we disagree with Islam. You know, there's that intolerant Christianity thing happening again. They're just not intolerant of people. I tell you, Islam doesn't tolerate Christianity. Christianity was around long before Islam was. 500-something A.D., Muhammad begins to write. He's an uninformed individual. Uh, Copies of the Bible are not available. He misinforms his followers about who Jesus Christ is from sources that we don't even know where he got the ideas from. And he attacks Christianity. So, So don't think for a second here. This is Christianity being obnoxious. Islam throws the first punch. And now has to give an answer. For you have challenged the one who said he was God and his blood forgives our sins. We don't have common ground. We don't worship the same God. It is not the same God at all. Although their God tries to get roots out of the idea that they're the God of Abraham. The God of Abraham is Jesus Christ. That's who he is. Abraham longed to see my day. (laughs) The Jews said, what are you, you, crazy long to see your day? You're not even 50 years old. You're saying Abraham knew you? Yeah. Yeah. Because I am the God of Abraham. And I've just put on flesh to come here and shed my blood for your forgiveness. You don't believe that's who God is? And you do not believe in the God of Christianity. We don't worship the same God. And we need to own something about some conviction about who God is. Let me tell you something. The coming, the rest of our lifetime, the rest of our lifetime, Islam will be the issue versus Christianity. It is becoming mainstream. It's getting into this country. Bad press is better than no press. It's becoming more and more common. It's the fastest growing religion in the world. Because it aggressively seeks to promote its view. It is anti-Christianity. It will not get along in the courts of heaven with the views of God. And so we, we do need to be a little bit better informed about that. But let me go back to it for a second. Hebrews chapter 10. This person of Christ and this work of Christ verse 19 it says therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great high priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. In verse 26, listen. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, what is the knowledge of the truth? Everything I just described the shedding of Jesus Christ's blood, the way, the new and living way through his flesh, through the veil. That's the truth. The gospel, the person and work of Christ is the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. The Apostle Paul went as far as to say, For I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Of all the essential knowledge that there could be in the realm of religion, Paul boiled it down to one thing. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See, this is the gospel mission. This is the truth. First Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to the way that this passage lays out the gospel for us. First Corinthians 15, verse 1 says now i would remind you brothers of the gospel i preach to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved the gospel is that which brings salvation you cannot have a religion that denies the person and work of christ and have something that will save anyone that's the message that christianity has as it's, its centerpiece If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. And then he goes on and talks about his other appearances. There's the very centerpiece of the message of Christianity. Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. Let me take you back to one more passage here because this one will touch a different realm of our belief system. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. If you walk throughout the entire Bible, this entire Bible is about the person of God and the work of God. The entire Bible. From start to finish, it's revealing who God is and it's revealing what he did in the realm of redeeming us and saving us. So every passage, ultimately, is pointing to Christ. Now listen to this passage. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. What is this passage about? Remember, the whole Bible is about one thing. What is this passage about? This passage is about revealing the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is about. The first question asked is not, Peter, who are you? The question asked is, Peter, who am I? Who do people say that I am? Now, I'm hitting on this issue, uh, one, because I want us to see the truth is the person and work of Christ. Second, I want us to realize how issues, whether they be foreign religions or things called Christianity, touch our belief system and raise a question that in this passage, is this passage teaching us that Peter is to be the rock upon which the church is to be built. Jesus didn't didn't marvel over the man Peter. He marveled over the revelation that was given. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, and upon this rock I will build my church. Listen, all throughout the Bible, the rock all throughout the Bible is Christ. All throughout the Bible. The New Testament reveals that the rock that was split open in the wilderness, that water came pouring forth out of it, that rock was Christ. The rock has always been Christ. It's always been the person and the work of Christ. And to skew that into an idea that somehow this passage is about Peter and who he would become, in the end here, Jesus doesn't say, then he strictly charged them, don't tell everybody who Peter is. Does he? I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm just reading the Bible to us. I know I have a little bit of an attitude about this, but I'm reading the Bible because uh, this would be my point today is that we become convinced of ideas that we can't find in the Bible. And when one reads this passage, the whole passage is about the issue of who is Christ. And he reveals who he is and he's the rock that he's going to build. The church is built on the person and work of Christ. The whole Bible is built on the person and work of Christ. And in the end, he tells them, don't yet reveal this. This is the same this he's been talking about through the whole passage. So this is is truth. And the church is called to be the pillar and support and protector of the truth. Put in your outline, the church is defined by its faithful relationship to the truth. When you depart from being the pillar and support of truth, you depart from being the church. Getting together, having religious trappings and philosophical ideas does not make you the church. Getting together and doing noble, worthy causes does not make you the church. And don't get me wrong. As a citizen of New Orleans, I thank God for the Red Cross. I thank God for... Habitat for Humanity. Uh, In international settings, I would thank God for UNICEF and the Peace Corps. I I would thank God for the way in which those entities help human beings through the difficulties of life. But those noble activities do not make one the church. What makes this gathering the church is its association with the truth. And if you pull the truth out of the church, you just got a bunch of people getting together. Even if it's getting together to do something that's kind and generous and caring. Which, by the way, the church ought to be doing as an expression of the truth. It's not one or the other. Unfortunately, that's often the, the mistake that's made in churches. We either are passionate about the truth or passionate about helping people. That's very unfortunate. You know, it, it ends up with with the confusing images of... Um, uh, careful in who i pick here the reverend jesse jackson you know, the the reverend i wish he just dropped that part of his name you know if you if you want to help people you want to fly into foreign countries you want to rescue people that are, are uh, being held hostage you want to help uh, a class of people with issues going on in their life that's fine but what i never hear out of the man's mouth has got anything to do with the truth do both you want to talk about the social injustices that are going on? Don't, don't be so Republican that you don't care about people who are poor. I mean, come on, all you white people. We hang around a country that, that in certain conservative political views, it, it doesn't raise the priority of helping the poor in suffering. It doesn't. It hopes it comes up with some ideas that might trickle down on it. Here, we hope that something spills on you. But by way of engaging it in, in ways that might be more meaningful, you've got to go to a different party. Well, that other party doesn't really care for some of the views of Christianity. And so what you find yourself in as a Christian is your call to, to radically love those who need to be loved and cared for while you demonstrate the truth of Christianity, not one or the other. And so we need to be careful in how we do that. Let me go into this thought here, the saints' relation to Scripture. Let's turn back to Timothy, this time to 2 Timothy. Paul writing to Timothy, again, helping him to understand how to build a church, the role that truth is to play. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and really beginning in the beginning of the chapter and running all the way through the end of that chapter, this section sets up a contrast... Of behavior, And it's a reason why I want to draw our attention to it. And what makes the difference between one mode of behavior and another is the impact of the truth on these two sets of people. On the one hand, there's going to be a list and a description of behaviors that Paul says is problematic. And on the other hand, there's going to be demonstrated activity and lifestyle that is to be condoned and commended. And the difference between these two has to do with the place of the truth in their lives. And so if we go back last week to the call of the church, how one ought to behave in church. And immediately Paul transitions to the church, which is the pillar in support of the truth. It's not just ideas that we promote, but it's those ideas of truth and the person of truth that impacts our lives, that causes our behavior to become what it is. And you see that in this passage. Let's look first at Paul's highlighting of those who are not impacted by the truth. <clears throat> Verse 1. Reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That that, that statement at the end of those long descriptions is a sober warning to the church that you can look like both of these. You can have a form of godliness in your life and still find yourself described over and over again in this passage. And I I felt preparing, praying last night, I, I felt the need to warn some here this morning that you have allowed the the appearance of godliness. The category where there is an appearance of godliness to be a source of deception in your life. Because what's in that list more describes you. I think I think young people in particular struggle with this in incredible ways, especially if you grow up in church. You can get around the form of godliness, the sheer momentum of your family and the people that you've been associated with for years keeps you walking a certain way and you have a form of godliness but in your heart you love pleasure the expense of loving god proud arrogant disobedient to parents see these things can all exist together in the church they can exist together the, the problem is here that that denies the power of the gospel It denies the power of godliness. To maintain an appearance of godliness in one category while other categories run rampant in sin denies the power of God. Because the power of God would touch those issues in your life. And there would be impact. There would be change. There would be growth. There would be wrestling and success occurring in those categories. And if you cannot find that, you, you may need to examine whether you simply have an appearance of godliness. Why do we do a church covenant? Because we're committed to something for the glory of God. And if my life is... I'm willing willing to sign an agreement with others if I can assign a category of my life to that agreement. But I have no intention of honoring parents. I have no intention... I'm not pursuing some form of pleasure. I have no intention of getting my name off of this list. Then you need to be warned. You may be taking up a seat here, but you're not perhaps part of the kingdom of God. There should be something in you that finds these other issues unattractive. And if that's not in place, you should be sobered. If you find the attractiveness of sin something that causes there to be a shadow over your godliness, then you may have an appearance of godliness and not actually have godliness. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. What's the problem with the folks in this category? It is the impact of truth on their life. That's the problem. Now, what Paul does here is he contrasts that group who has not been impacted by the truth with Timothy who has, and with his own life as well. In verse 10, Paul says, You, however, as opposed to these others, you... Have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. With persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now all that persecution is almost like a sidebar comment for Paul. Indeed, all who desire to be to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. While evil people, I believe he's beginning to pick up his thought again here, where he started. He started talking about evil people, their practices in life, and the lack of impact of truth in their life. He's saying, but but Timothy, by contrast, you have followed something different. You are not that way. You have followed my example, which is not that way as well. And then he says in verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What's the basis for the difference of behavior between one group and the other? One group never is able to come to a knowledge of the truth. The other... Has see truth is the centerpiece of what the church will ever be. You cannot you cannot remove the truth from the church and still think you have the tr- the, the church. It loses its meaning. It loses its function. It loses who we're called to be. Verse fourteen and fifteen. I want to hold on to these admonitions because Paul admonishes Timothy for him to continue. Timothy, continue, remain, be anchored, don't move from where you are. Now, the the backdrop for this is, Timothy, you're standing in a a current that is moving in a different direction. The tendency, if you're not careful, is for you to be swept along with the current. While evil people go from bad to worse. While your culture, Timothy, is going to move from here to here in your lifetime. You, however, remain where you are. Do not move. You stay committed to what you've always believed and what you've learned and who you've learned it from, which is based in the sacred writings, the Scriptures themselves. Timothy, don't move. Church, don't move. Stand ground. Believe and be firmly convinced of the truth. Hold on to it with a passion because the culture is going to move in our lifetime from here to here. Now, what historically has happened to the church is the church has slowly moved with it. Truth begins to be watered down at best, compromised, and lost at worst. Here's the call for the church. Be committed to the truth. Even if it sounds crazy, because at some point, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Is that what the Bible says? How do you raise your children? That sounds foolish. Why are you staying with that loser? That sounds foolish. Why do you believe that about that? See, so your beliefs are going to start sounding foolish while the culture moves away from them. You're either going to move with them or you're going to stand ground and you're going to believe them and you're going to start looking and sounding like a fool in the culture. Now, I want to highlight a couple of things here. Our culture is our on the move. It's rapidly on the move. Values are changing. Views are changing. Practices are changing. Solutions are changing. The ideas and condition of the family. I put this quote. I just happened to get this quote this week from American Values. Listen to this. Worldwide trends in law and reproductive technologies are redefining parenthood in ways that put the interests of adults before the needs of children. So says a new report. The revolution in in parenthood, the emerging global clash between adult rights and children's needs. The two-person mother-father model of parenthood is being changed to meet adults' rights to have children rather than children's needs to know and be raised, whenever possible, by their mother and father, says the authors. Trends driving the revolution in parenthood include high rates of divorce and single-parent childbearing, the growing use of egg and sperm donors, support of same-sex marriage, increasing interest in group marriage arrangements, and proposals to allow children conceived with the use of sperm and egg donors to have three legal parents. Moreover, these trends are proceeding at breakneck speed as reproductive technologies advance and new groups demand the right to marry, according to the Commission of Parenthood's future. And our society is changing, and you're going to be asked to change with it. And you need to decide, as the church, the church has an obligation. To stand its ground. And quite honestly, it's the only hope for the culture. For the church to stand its ground and not grow silent or figure out how to, how to sound like we're accommodating. Listen, this is a danger. You live in a pluralistic society and the saltiness of the church gets lost because we're trying... Listen, don't do this obnoxiously. But, but do not... Do not become silent because your views are different. It's the only hope for people moving in the wrong direction. Whether they're moving towards Islam and anything goes in the realm of religion. Or whether they're moving towards how to define the family and how relationships should function. The rights of individuals in this country are, you know, are getting distorted and, and, and goofy. I got an email this past week about a high school football game where the, uh, the principal wanted to stand, this is kind of in the Bible Belt, wanted to stand up and pray before the game, but very cleverly opened the time up by saying, I'm prohibited by law to, to be able to pray openly at this meeting. And then went on in a very clever fashion to highlight what all would not be prohibited by law. You know, for me to stand up and affirm uh, alternative lifestyles, for me to pass out condoms at the game. Uh, For me, all these things, you know, for us to hug Mother Earth at the game. All these things would be okay. But for me to pray and honor God, that would not be acceptable because it might offend somebody. No, I don't know about you, but are any of the other things offending anybody? But we live in a culture that's okay for certain types of offenses to occur. It's absolutely fine for you to offend people over those other issues. Children who don't need to inform their parents that they're considering an abortion. Well, that's fine for some. That offends a whole bunch, but nothing's being done about that. We we, we are moving. Our culture is moving. It is on the move, and we're called to continue. Sensuality and materialism is on the move. Dress styles, uh, appearance issues is on the move. Church, be careful. We don't find ourselves moving away from truth into ideas we're borrowing from our culture. This movement of man's solution, psychology has thrust itself to the, the front and center to address the human experience and, it, and is proclaiming remedies. I'm sorry, I want to read something to you here because I want to highlight the fact that there's nothing new under the sun. It always sounds new, but there's nothing new under the sun. David Powelson in his book, Seeing with New Eyes, says, it is helpful to get a bit of historical perspective. Recognize that we are in the midst of the third major biopsychiatric wave over the past 140 years, with all the discoveries that are taking place in how uh, electrons and neurons fire within the brain, you know, it, it's it's being presented as we're onto something that's never been onto before. Well, this is the third wave over the past 140 years. In each case, a new bit of knowledge or a new efficacy was extrapolated into vast hopes for solving the ills of humankind. In each previous case, biopsychiatry did a little bit of good and left a lot of disillusionment. Now, if you don't study history, you, you, you wouldn't know that after the Civil War, between the Civil War and 1910, based on head wounds that were uh, experienced and the dysfunction of the brain that followed from folks that were in the war, uh, studies revealed something called weak nerves, the condition that people had weak nerves. How many of you all are old enough to remember that phrase getting used a good bit in your life? Raise your hand. You can, if you're old, you can do that. Thank you. Weak nerves began to be this catch-all phrase for all kinds of of inappropriate behaviors and brokenness within a a person's experience while he suffers from weak nerves. A common diagnosis. Uh, So they thought they had discovered the end of all things there. Pavlov, in the 1890s, discovered the electrical components of the cortex and thought he had solved all of man's issues by understanding the electrical dynamics that were in the brain. Well... That didn't quite go where everybody thought it would go. It opened up the window for Sigmund Freud to jump in with both feet and address behaviorism. So no longer was he dealing with the, the genetic and the, and the uh, biological components of human behavior. He went and introduced it to, to, to psychotherapy and to behavior modification issues. And next thing, a wave of support groups and counseling came into the human experience through that. But that began to get married together and give way to uh, what occurred 40s and 50s in what we know now as electroshock therapy. Right? If you watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when you were younger, uh, you understand the realm here of, of taking the electrical components and trying to shock the mind into a different form of functioning. Uh, and then they married that together with newly discovered drugs that between the two of them, they were supposed to solve man's issues. All these things simply didn't work. Leaving us now with the, the powerful mechanisms of MRIs and, and PET scans and the ability to get inside the mind further and define what's really going wrong and what, how to solve those issues. Well, that's, that's all over our society today. Alternatives are being given to us. Well, Whatever the, the, the category might be, how does, how does one not get swept away by the culture? How do we not do that? And this is where it needs to be where our commitment is. In verse 14 and 15. As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings now, I would suggest to us as a church, if we're going to be committed to the truth, then, then that practice needs to describe us an acquaintance with the Scriptures. We need to be acquainted with the Scriptures. We need to be learning the Scriptures, studying, evaluating, letting them interact with our ideas that we walk out on a daily basis. We need to firmly believe them. Some translations say to be convinced of and i do think that is where christianity falls to pieces if we're acquainted today might be doing okay but to be fully convinced that what this word of god says is the truth no i don't i don't know if the church goes with that the church is seeking many alternatives many competing ideas we don't have rock solid convictions in the church today, as we should. But if we're committed to being the church, we have to be committed to the truth that's in it. Let me just hit a couple points here real quick before we stop. If you look at the rest of this passage in 2 Timothy, it says all Scripture is is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God Himself. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And that's a, that's a mouthful. We could do a whole series of teachings out of just that verse, and it would be a worthy study. But when we come to the Word of God, this, this is a, a, a holy, living divinely given book. This is not man collecting ideas. This is, this is what God inspired others to put down for our benefit. And there's a couple of passages. That if you look those up, you'll see what the Bible says about the Bible. It is people moved by God to give us His Word. So what we have here is we have God's Word on things. We have God's opinions about life, what causes life to be broken? How does one fix it? What ails us? What are the remedies? What are the patterns of life that one needs to have? The Bible is what God said about those things. Now, I think it's significant to hold on to the fact that it is God who is speaking truth. Because truth, truth is a large, powerful concept. It involves knowing a lot. I mean, the simplicity of us knowing that 2 plus 2 is 4. We know that's the truth. Because in the realm of possibilities, all the possibilities that could exist, we, we, we absolutely have a category that absolutely we know the only option that exists is four. That's the only option that exists. So in that moment, we're as close to being like God in the realm of knowledge as we can get. But in other categories that don't have math equations associated with them, and there are many options available... We don't know all the options, do we? We don't know all the possibilities. God does. See, when he speaks on any issue, he speaks from the confident level of two plus two is four. He can bank on it. Always. See, none of us are wishy-washy on that, are we? I mean, you don't say two plus two is four. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm not really convinced. I mean, if you believe something different, I respect that. Uh, you know, This is true. We know it's true all the time. God speaks in every category that way. Because He knows how every possibility exists at any moment in time. Wayne Grudem says, To say that God knows all things and that His knowledge is perfect is to say that He is never mistaken in His perception or understanding of the world. All that He knows and thinks is true and is a correct understanding of the nature of reality. In fact... Since God knows all things infinitely well, right, there's nothing God doesn't know. There's no lack in His understanding. We can say that the standard of true knowledge is conformity to God's knowledge. See, in this regard, one cannot have truth without having God's thought on it. Because it is God's thought that defines what is true. You and I might be grasping at one of a thousand possibilities, and we're only aware of four of them, and we've chosen number three. You might choose differently if you understood there was 996 other ones, right? You might. God knows everyone that exists, and when He speaks, He speaks with absolute, definitive authority. So we know what will never happen is we won't discover one day that the Bible got outdone by modern science. Because man, although man is discovering how to use an MRI device, God knows how the brain works already. He didn't need a device. And when He spoke things about our lives, He did so from the vantage point of knowing everything that there was to know about human life and its existence upon planet Earth. So when He speaks to us, where do, we to, where do we want to put our trust? I don't have time to cover all these thoughts. I, just want, I do want to hit one issue. The issue of, is, is this Bible sufficient? Not do we believe it's God's word. Well, that's important. Not is it, is it accurate Is it sufficient, John MacArthur says, perhaps the one doctrine most under attack in the church of our generation is the sufficiency of Scripture. Even people who give lip service to authority and inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture sometimes balk at affirming its sufficiency. The result is nearly the same as a denial of biblical authority because it directs people away from the Bible in search of other truth. The average Christian seems to assume that something more than Scripture is needed to help us cope in a modern world. Now, this is, this is too true of the church. The danger is when you, when you start believing this Bible just doesn't give enough for me to live my life, the only other place for you to reach is into a culture that is flowing downstream. It's the only place you can borrow the ideas from. And it's very hard to be the church who continues in the truth when one believes that the Bible's not sufficient for our lives. It is a sufficiency battle I think the church faces more than anything else today. We have have ills and ails and problems and challenges. Do we believe this Bible to be sufficient to address those issues? We live in a culture, and I'm going to say this carefully, which, by the way... If you've ever come in for counseling, counseling is different than preaching. Uh, I'm not trying to address your particular moment in life. If you want to know how I would address your particular moment in life, come up after the meeting and say, here's my situation. Okay, this is not a, everybody get off all your drugs. Don't ever go see a therapist again. This is not saying that. Okay, but I am calling into question, how did you arrive at the decision to go to that therapist to to believe and validate what you're being told, to take this pill as a remedy as opposed to that pill, as opposed to this much, as opposed to not taking it at all. All those things, we're not dealing in absolutes here. How do do we arrive at that? There are folks who are pursuing those things that maybe need to go back and revisit how you started down that road. I'm not saying steer off the road into the ditch, but you may need to at least rethink through, how did I arrive here? here's a a, a tragedy here's a tragedy if you've been labeled we have labels for behavior now if you've been labeled I don't know you're ADHD you are obsessive compulsive you are anorexic you are whatever the label is if you've been labeled listen, listen, listen carefully It is tragic for you to know more about how that label defines you than how the Bible defines you. It is tragic. It is tempting to sit across from someone who is very familiar with the highlights of your behavior, who can turn to you and say, well, tell me a little bit about you. And you tell them this much, and they say, well, you're probably experiencing this, 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 and this. And you're going, yeah. Yeah, and this and this. Well, the reason why is because of this and this and this. Yeah, yeah. And next thing you know, you're you're just you're you're all over the label. Well, folks who are like that have this, and they have this, and they have that. and, And and here are individuals who have not consulted this, who read very little of the Bible, who spend very little time getting counsel from the Word of God. This is God's word. This is God speaking into human experience. There is nothing new under the sun. You think you're the first person to feel the way you feel? You think when God was writing the Bible to people back in these days, nobody had any of the issues that we have today? There's nothing new under the sun. The problems were the same, and yet God spoke, and he spoke with authority, and he spoke knowing there were a thousand options out there. Let me tell you the answer. I know situations can be complicated. Our lives can be complicated. But there is no excuse. There is no excuse for us to not study and know and be convinced of this word because we wear a label or because we come from a certain religious tradition. There are people here this morning. This is tragic. It would describe me for much of my life. I knew more... About the traditions and dogmas of my church than I did about what the Bible said. The dogmas and traditions of my church experience represented man trying to create religion. This is the God breathed Word of God, and I never read it. And I never understood why exactly I believe what I did either. I just believe, well, it's just, know, it's just what we were always taught tragic. We have a living word of God written by the God who knows everything that there is to know, who spoke to us about life. His word is sufficient. It's powerful. It's living. I remember getting to be 17 or 18 years old. By that time, I had read the Bible for several years. And I took out my church traditions and I said, why did I believe this? And for the first time in my life, I went back to the sources. I pulled out where the dogma came from, what year it was created, what decision was made that created that thing. I say, I had no idea. I just believed it. It's what I'd always been taught. Listen, you could come from a variety of backgrounds and be in this church with those kinds of issues in our life. There are people today who, Peter, stand up encouraging us in terms of the, the move of the Spirit of God. There are people who have never seen the Spirit of God move. They've never had explained to them that way. And their personal tradition becomes God just doesn't do that anymore. I don't expect him to do that anymore. What a tragedy! That's what we believe about God when this is not what it says about God. We're living in the fallout of years and years of, of clergy laity divisions in the church. Listen, that's not a biblical concept. There's, there's not the professional ministers and the people who watch. That's nowhere in the Bible. But if you attend most churches, it's everywhere in the church. It's everywhere in the church. There are those who feel the sense of responsibility to minister others and there are those who feel just, I just need to come. See, we're very biblically uninformed. We can't take that to be who we are if we're going to be the church. The church is the pillar in support of the truth. Not my opinions, not my history, not somebody else's. So let me close by saying this. Matt, you can come back and help us close. On the last page of your outline... And in each category that we speak on in the next few weeks, we will touch base on a concise or an attempted a concise statement that would reflect what we're after as a church together. What are we agreeing to? A church covenant, what are we all committing our lives to together? Here would be the commitment to the authority of Scripture. I agree that the Scripture is the only infallible revelation from God that it is sufficient for a life of godliness and is the final authority in matters of opinion or dispute. I therefore commit to pursue growth in my knowledge of Scripture and to form my beliefs, decisions, and life practice out of biblical doctrines and teachings and to the best of my ability to support my opinions and life choices from Scripture. I think every person who's going to be a part of the church needs to decide what will be your commitment to the truth. If, if we create a church where, oh, I don't know, I might read it, I might not. Uh, I might share some of those views, I might not. If we open in the church and we say, hey, look, you know, we're just welcome to have a variety of opinions here that don't reflect God's opinions then listen, we we can't fulfill the mandate of being the pillar and support of the truth. So we're not asking you to be a, uh, you know, I'm going to go to Bible college, I'm going to become a guy who can write systematic theology. But we're all asking, and we all need to realize some of our skewed views on whether somebody should divorce or not, how to correct your children, what religions are okay and which ones are not. Those things are flowing out of our knowledge of the truth. And into the church come people who need to hear the truth and they receive counsel from our lives and from our input with each other. And if we're not committed to the truth, we're going to steer them astray. Timothy, continue in. Continue. Don't move. Church, don't move. Don't move from where you are. Let me give you this closing question. When you leave a church service... At this point, this would probably be a good candidate for this feeling. I don't like what that guy said today. I imagine somebody here is going, Oh, these are the kind of messages that make me go, I don't know why I come to this church. If you find that when you listen to preaching, you don't like the way it feels. The question is not whether you like the way it felt. The question is, is it biblical? Does it reflect biblical truth? I need to first answer that because if I find it does, and I'm, then I've just discovered something about me and my position. If I only say, I don't like the way that felt, period. End of discovery, end of questions. Well, you, you leave offended and you leave unaffected by the living word of God. Now, if, if what you're hearing is not biblical then you have a different course of action. You need to come and share with us why you think that's not a biblical thing to say. And hopefully you can open up the Bible and show the pages where you base your opinion on these passages as to why I don't agree with what you said. I would respect that. But we need to assess our own lives. Jay Adams, this great counselor, told told this lady who came up to him after... After meeting, he'd used an illustration, I think, about a cat being petted. She comes up and she says, Sir, you have stroked the fur the wrong way. (laughs) If you've ever petted a cat, you know how much cats love They have their... Which I do that to my cat, by the way. (laughs) Up the back, you know. Cats hate it. (laughs) All you cat lovers, I'm I'm sorry. Apologize. (laughs) Jay Adams' response was classic. He said... Or perhaps the cat is facing in the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> Truth touches our lives a certain way. If you feel at odds with it, don't take issue until you've examined, am I in line with what the Bible says on this issue? Before I decide, is what was said, is it wrong? Do I disagree? I need to first examine me in light of the Bible. Let's stand up together. Father, Your your Word, full of life, leading us out of bondage and affliction and imprisonment, setting before us an open road to discover You All that you have for our lives. And giving to us together as a church an assignment to be to this world what it desperately needs. A voice of truth in it. Lord, we want to be that. Lord, we are here this morning because we want to be the church. That's why we gather, Lord. Lord, help us today to see being the church means being committed to the truth with all of our hearts being acquainted with the sacred writings of Scripture that You've preserved for us, learning them and being fully convinced of them. Oh, Lord, that will both bless our lives and open up the blessing of Your living Word to this world and to this fellowship that we have with one another. So, Lord, would You prepare us? And would You give us convictions that are like Yours? Lord, we want to be the church, which is the pillar and support Of the truth. For your glory. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys.